Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled East and West Economies Diverge. It is the 19th of September. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Niall MacDonald and from Hong Kong, Thomas Fogel. Despite repeated forecasts of recession, GDP growth in the US has so far proved resilient, and inflation in the US has come in higher than forecasts. But in China, the situation seems neatly reversed. Growth recovery has yet to fire up while the consumer price index turned negative at one point over the summer. Not surprisingly, the actions of the central banks of the US and China are also moving in different directions, as the Fed talks of higher rates for longer, while the People's Bank of China has offered repeated monetary stimulus. As the world's two largest economies continue to diverge, we'll look today at implications for financial markets and outline our latest tactical asset allocation moves. Niall, if you could please set the scene for us, how did markets get through the summer? Good morning, Lorna. Well, since the end of June, markets have ground higher with the MSCI world up over 2% as of close of play last Friday. Although it has not all been plain sailing, with August seeing some volatility, the months turned out to be an unusually busy period for markets. This was brought on by events such as issues for the property sector in China, poor economic results in Europe, a downgrade of the U.S. credit rating and continuing strong data on the U.S. economy. So over the month of August, markets actually closed negative with strong negative performance in Europe down nearly 3% and emerging markets down nearly 5%. When we look at equity factors and sectors, in general, value stocks like energy and consumer discretionary have outperformed for this quarter. But on a year-to-date basis, large cap tech stocks and also so-called growth companies have strongly outperformed with the rally in AI and a few large names driving performance, notably in the US where the stock market has a larger share of technology names. In bond markets, interest rates move noticeably higher. So the US 10-year was up half a percent to 4.33%. And Eurozone government bond yields also followed higher too. So strong macro data in the US and stickier than expected inflation in the Eurozone have been some of the catalysts for this. Also, Fitch downgraded the US credit rating from AAA to AA+. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically Fitch said that the high levels of debt and also the lack of political cohesion on the debt ceiling were key factors in the downgrade. So more interest rate sensitive securities like government bonds and investment grade credit are all in the red since the end of June. High yield though, that's lower rated bonds, have produced positive returns with the high levels of interest they offer offsetting the rate's volatility. In the commodity space, notably oil has surged to a 10-month high of $95 a barrel and has decoupled from other commodities over the summer. This is following extended unilateral output cuts from Saudi Arabia and Russia through to December. And looking at option markets, they're now pricing in a 45% probability of Brent staying above $90 a barrel by June 2024. That's very useful context. Thank you, Niall. I mentioned earlier that Western central banks still come across as hawkish in their messaging, but their policy action as such could well look rather different from here. Yes, well, European Central Bank hiked last week in what was one of the most uncertain rate decisions for market participants. The Eurozone, particularly Germany, has been experiencing collapsing hard macro data, and this is coupled with sticky inflation. And this has put the ECB in a difficult place of balancing the fight against inflation with a negative growth environment. But I think the rhetoric has changed in that higher for longer is now the narrative that central banks are propagating. This is suggesting that they're going to look at the data as it's produced to figure when and how the fight against inflation has been achieved. 
Inflation clearly remains at the top of the Western central bank's agenda. But the rise in energy prices you mentioned is not going to be helpful to the headline inflation data as we move into the winter. Yes, the rise in oil prices will be a cause of concern for market participants. Now, the Fed focuses on core PCE, which removes food and energy, as these can have the highest price swings. However, if energy prices remain high, this can spill into inflationary pressures in the general economy. So it may cost more for travel and logistics, for example. And what we've seen in the market price action is that two-year inflation break-evens have moved significantly higher recently. We have discussed before, but as interest rates top out for this cycle, even if this will be more of an extended plateau than a peak, this could be a bullish signal for fixed income markets. Yes, I've said it previously on this podcast that it's hard not to get excited about fixed income at these yield levels. So when you have high yield bonds and emerging market debt with yields over 8%, this has typically led to successive years of high single digit returns. Even the attractiveness of government bonds is appealing. You can now get a two-year Italian bond at close to 4% yield. So banking nearly 8% if you hold that to maturity. I've managed bond portfolios throughout the great quantitative easing experiments and When we saw German bonds even reaching negative 50 basis points, if you hold this bond to maturity, you were guaranteed to lose half a percent a year. So as I said, it's hard to not get excited about fixed income looking across the spectrum. There's a place in a diversified portfolio fixed income is definitely warranted. Bonds are back and investors need to take notice. Thanks again for that, Niall, and for that overview of the Western economies. If we can turn to China now, Thomas, as we mentioned, the People's Bank of China has been consistently loosening policy rates over the past few months. Are you seeing signs now that this is having the desired effect? Hi, Lorna. Yes, there have been several rate cuts over the last few months. After lowering the one-year MLF rate by 15 basis point and lowering the one-year LPR by 10 basis points in August, The most recent one was last week when the PBOC cut the reverse requirement ratio by 25 basis points. After mainly disappointing macro data in July, we are indeed seeing signs of improvement in August data. Just recently, the August retail sales and industrial output numbers came in above expectations. Also, trade data and manufacturing PMI surprised to the upside. The City Economic Surprise Index for China, which measures data surprises relative to market expectations, is rising from very depressed levels mid-July to now more neutral levels. And it's not only monetary stimulus that is giving the Chinese economy a boost. Yes, and this is important as monetary stimulus alone won't be sufficient. Overall, we indeed can see that policy easing gains momentum. Especially in August, we saw both supportive measures regarding financial markets, for example, reducing the stamp duty in stock trading, and regarding industrial, fiscal, or property policies. This is encouraging to see, but it is important to note that there wasn't and likely won't be any big bazooka measures, although at least some market participants are hoping for it. The base case is probably some additional gradual fiscal stimulus measures and property market support to come. That should stabilize sentiment, but it will maybe not be enough for a sustained equity rally or an economic boom. But do these support measures actually extend to the troubled property sector? You mentioned that there. 
Yes, certainly. After weak property sales and price data in July, ongoing negative headlines about private developers and weak property sentiment, we saw end of August the first nationwide demand-side property policy easing since 2015. The two main measures were one, a change of the first-time buyer definition, and two, lowering the mortgage down payment ratio. These measures mainly affect the bigger tier one cities, which represent a rather low percentage of total nationwide sales. But they should still send a strong signal to support home demand and stabilize the fall of property sales. In combination with the approaching eight-day Golden Week holiday in October, which is historically a stronger period for home sales, we should see improving property sales data soon. But over the medium term, with the current measures, we rather see an L-shaped recovery in the property sector. That's interesting. So no big bazooka of stimulus, as you said, but nonetheless, could this steadily improving picture lead us to become more positive on China as a sector for investment? Well, on the one hand, Chinese equities look attractive from a valuations point of view, especially versus U.S. equities. On the other hand, sentiment is still weak, and recently every intraday or multi-day rebound in the market faded quickly and was sold by investors. For a more positive, sustained equity market performance, we would need to see at least one of the following catalysts. Improving macro data over several consecutive months, improving earnings, further sustained policy measures, or improving consumer and private sector confidence. It also needs to be seen if the market is patient enough to wait for one of these catalysts. Another recent headwind to Asian equities in general has been a stronger US dollar, with, for example, the dollar index rising more than 5% since mid-July. Yes, it's interesting you should mention that because the strength of the dollar has been a key feature of financial markets this year. Now, if now US interest rates have indeed reached an extended plateau, is it possible that the dollar might lose direction over the coming months? Well, what has driven the dollar rally is indeed the significant move in interest rates and the higher interest rate differentials. These have come down as other developed central banks, notably the European Central Bank, have began to hike rates as well. I think from a euro perspective, though, from here, I think the dollar will continue to remain strong due to the declining macro picture in the eurozone and as negative sentiment impacts the euro. And indeed, as we maintain a higher for longer interest rate environment, as the Fed has said, this should also be supportive of the dollar in the near term. Thanks for that. So in response to this recent divergence and indeed the evolving situations in the major economies, what adjustments have we made to our tactical asset allocation? Well, I think the key message is that we're remaining neutral on equities, but we've upgraded Japanese equities to moderate overweight. With the weak performance of the Japanese yen in recent months, where it now trades close to the 150 mark versus the US dollar, this is a figure which has historically signaled an upper limit to any further weakness. And we believe the currency should strengthen from here. What we've done is we've implemented an overweight in Japanese equities unhedged, given the improved macro environment as well. And this is very much a short-term tactical view. On the bond side, we've increased our exposure to US government bonds. We remain moderate overweight in emerging market debt, where we view that the higher levels of interest that these bonds offer are very attractive. Within euro bonds, we're still negative as we believe the ECB remains on the back foot in their fight against inflation. And there is possibility of even a further rate hike from here. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.